it's easy to feel like life is an unremitting stream of obligation. That everybody wants something. Everybody's after something. I got a call a couple of nights ago. And I'm smart. I'm savvy. I know everybody wants something from me. And so they call and they're offering me something. But I'm duped. Just for a moment, I'm duped. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Maybe this actually works to my advantage. And they finish their spiel and I say, what's the catch? And they say, there really isn't one. Really? And we talk a little more. And then he says, however, you have to give me $199 today. Fooled. Because I know better. Everybody wants something. It's easy to live like that's all that's happening around us. And not just, you know, our possessions. Even my house wants things. My house wants new paint and it wants to be repaired. and It wants to not leak and things like that. But people want things from us. Our friends, our loved ones, and people we don't even really know. And then we hear about the need in the midst of the world. Oh my, there's a lot of need out there. And they want something of me, and how much am I supposed to do? It's easy, quite honestly, you want to shut it all off. I saw a movie recently... It was fascinating. It was not as fun as I thought it was going to be, but it was fascinating. It's called Up in the Air with George Clooney. I, won't, I, won't, I promise you, I will not blow the plot for you. Uh, but George Clooney is a guy who is essentially paid to travel around the country and fire people. And that's his job. He's also a motivational speaker, and he has only one speech, and that is what's in your backpack. And he walks on stage and he opens up a backpack and he begins to talk every time about the different things in people's life. And he says, now put the things in your backpack, that which you're carrying. And he starts with small things and then he builds and your car and your house and he goes, now strap it on your shoulders. How heavy does it feel? And you're thinking for a moment, ah, I see what George Clooney is saying is we're too trapped by our possessions. And yes, we need to, we need to stri- streamline our lives. But then he moves on. He says, you know what the heaviest thing in your backpack is? People. Your relationships. They're a burden. They require things of you. That's what you have to strip. And he's decided that life, in connection with other people, is far too difficult. And so he will float through life disconnected, free. It's easy at times in our life to hear that motivational speech and go, I think he's right. I think I would like less obligation, less duty, less burden. And then I walk into church, and I'm in the South. And so, of course, my question is, what does God want from me? Because he wants something. What do you want, God? You know, I'm I'm doling out to everybody else. What do you want? How much much of my soul do do you need from me? In this chapter we're going to look at in the book of Micah, the people that God is speaking to clearly feel this way. That God is asking things of them. And it's become a burden. And they're wondering, God, how much do you want of me? And this is the beginning of the response. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. God says, really? What is the burden that I've laid on you? Tell me. And in our heads we think, 
Seriously? God, you want to answer that? What's the burden you've laid on me? There's a whole list. There's the Ten Commandments. I've got to do that. And then it goes on. You see, the Ten Commandments is written in a whole section of whole sorts of other rules and regulations. You've got requirements, God, and they feel heavy. It is very easy to walk through life and ask the question, what does everybody, including God, want from me? And then we become very protective and very cautious because there's only so much of us to give. And so we're parceling it out a little at a time and holding in reserve what we need for ourselves. I'm grateful for the times when we don't have to give anything to anyone and can just have our life. So what does God require? He's actually going to tell us. In Micah 6, 8, which, quite honestly, to me it feels like it's the, it's the Mount Everest in the Bible. It's the peak. It's the highest point where God says, I'll tell you exactly what I want from you and for you. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does God require? But that you act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. That's it. What does God require? That we act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Before we figure out what that means, let's just think about require. I just find it fascinating that God actually used that word. What does God require of you? I don't like requirements. If you look in the dictionary, requirements are that which I'm obligated to do. I don't like being obligated to do things. That which is my duty. What does God require? What do do I got to give? How much are the requirements? But what is fascinating is that God connects two things that we don't normally put together. What is good and what does God require? See, requirements feels like duty. It's the minimum bare requirement of what we have to do. But the good, see, the good was a powerful concept in the ancient world. The good was the best possible life. The good. The Greek philosophers spent most of their time trying to figure out that, what that was. What is it that's at the core of human life that makes it happy and beautiful and well-lived? And we never place the requirements and the good life together. When I teach college students, there are requirements in my course. And I lay them clearly out in the syllabus. This is what is required. You have asked me, O student, what is required in public speaking? Three speeches, three critiques, two outlines, and don't miss more than three classes. That is the minimum course requirement. But I will tell them that simply hitting the requirements doesn't mean you had a good class. It doesn't mean it was the best. It certainly doesn't mean it was an A. It just gets you the bare minimum requirement. And I'll have students that look at me occasionally. I have many wonderful students, but occasionally I have students that look at me and they say, I did what you required. How come I didn't get an A? 
To which response is, because it wasn't a work. Those were the basic requirements. And so we pull that sort of notion over into Christianity where we think, okay, what's the basic requirements? I think all I need is a C and the whole life thing. God, what's the minimum standard requirement to pass the course? What do you want? Okay, what do you want? How much do I have to dole out? How many papers? How many times do I have to go to church? Give me the 10 or 12 things to do that I need to do that are enough to make you happy and then I'll be done. And he steadfastly refuses to do it. He says, I don't have this minimum basic requirement. That which I require of you is the best, is the good life. Still it all down? What does God want for you? What is the good life? What does the life well lived look like? Act justice, justly love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And I am torn by this verse. I am. I love the verse. There's something about that so intuitively powerful. And yet, the more I explore it, the more difficult it feels. Okay, there's only three things. Act justly. I think I can do that because it doesn't say how often I have to act justly. but love mercy. And I'm caught up short. Love mercy. I love lots of things. You know, I don't do that whole, no, no, I like them, I don't love them. You know what I mean? I love lots of things. I love getting my way. I love when my days go the way I want. anything I should do? I do. I'm a fan of ambiguity and uncertainty. Do I love mercy? Does it make my heart beat faster when other people don't get what they deserve. They get grace. Does it make my heart more alive and more passionate when somebody else has a great day that looked like it was going toward chaos? Am I happier? Do I long for it? Do I pursue other people getting mercy? Is this what makes my heart beat faster. No. No. I stare at the requirements. There's only three. I faked my way through one and on two I was shot down because I don't love mercy. Sometimes I'm merciful. I'm not a, on a relative scale, a horrible human being. Sometimes I'm merciful. But love means, God used it so intentionally. Love means it's at the core of my being, my greatest affection. The thing that holds my heart is when you get mercy. When you get grace.
when you have walked yourself into a very dark corner and somebody breaks through and brings light into your world? Is this what makes my heart beat the fastest? I'm afraid not. And so the question I have to ask myself is why? And what exactly, God, are you requiring of me? And you know what the answer is? He's requiring me, my heart, the whole thing. Not 68% of it, not 92% of it. He's requiring my heart, full, complete. The apex of the good life is we walk humbly with God. Humbly, which means we stand before God knowing who we are and knowing who He is. And knowing that we will only live well when a life is surrendered to Him. And He begins to change us internally, not externally. It means that when I lack mercy, when I don't fight against injustice, that my call is not to wake up the next day and I'm going to try harder. Should I? Sure. But my call is to bring that moment where I don't love mercy and I don't act justly and fall before God and say, God, would you invade my heart? In humility, would you bring me to a place where I receive you? Where I walk humbly with you? And so I become a person who is, and this is the core, what God requires, a person who is connected to you and with my fellow humans. Too often, we think fighting injustice and being merciful are things that we add into our already incredibly crammed and confused and disjointed life. And we're trying to find spaces for mercy. I've got to fit it around everything else I'm doing. I don't have a lot of time. Tuesday at 11.15, I can be merciful. After that, I've got to go on. And it so misses the heart of what Christianity is. It is a heart that's connected. First connected to God, so I'm actually connected with you. I actually care that your life goes well. And you care that mine goes well. And we're not fighting and battling to become better people. We are surrendering our hearts to God, and He is transforming us. You see, you cannot live this verse out. You cannot live this verse out by finding nine or ten or twelve things to do and to do well. You cannot, because it misses the core. That we were not meant to live as isolated islands occasionally bumping into each other. I saw Avatar two, two days ago. I, I encourage you to see it. Just if for nothing else, for the special effects. And I despised the movie Titanic and so thought ill of James Cameron ever since. He has, I'm sure this matters a lot to him, but he's redeemed himself in my eyes. <laughs> the world that was created was stunning, just stunning. It was like, how did he think of that? It's just, it's, it's beautiful and it's brilliant. And, and yes, there's a whole theme going on that I, I know is pushing one agenda and but there's this underlying thing. See, the people on this planet, Pandora, one, one of the things they, they, they um, live out is a, a connection to one another. 
They believe that they're part of each other, that when one person cries, the other should weep with them. When one person's happy, the other should rejoice with it. They see their lives as connected. We don't. We live as islands. And so we see somebody's island in trouble, and we check our calendar, and we look at what we got going on, and we see if we got time to paddle over there and help out for a few minutes and then get back, because that's not our natural state. The natural state of islands is not to be connected. It's to be separated. And then God, in this simple verse, and in really a handful of words, wants to flip everything we believe about life. And it seems completely foreign. I want a list. I do. I just want six things to do. And I figure if I got six things to do, if I get four to five of them right every week, I'm passing. That'd be great. But this feels completely foreign. I'm supposed to live where I'm actually connected to you. When you weep, I don't think, should I feel bad for them? I weep for you. When you experience success, I don't wonder, how should I, how should I respond to this? I'm happy. When God's heart breaks, mine does. When God's heart is filled with delight, mine is. It feels completely foreign. But, doesn't it call to you? There's something about a life that I am not living alone and sort of parceling out bits of my time to people, but a life of actual connection. It's, it's like, as C.S. Lewis put it, a call from a distant country that makes me jerk my head up and go, there's, some, there's something there. There's something there that woos my heart and that draws me and says, this is how I want to live. And it becomes incompletely foreign. It feels it. But the, the longing for that sort of life is just deep and strong. And so God lays this verse out and says, what do I require of you? I require, if you must use those words, I require you being near me and me near you. I require us living out our lives together because this is the beautiful life. And it's what I require for you. And this often feels like the hardest thing of all. I have to step. Because if I live as an island, I can keep protecting. I can wash my boundaries. I can parcel out. And God says, no, I want you to walk humbly with me. I'm God. You are my daughter. You're my son. Walk with me. And so humbly, recognizing who he is and who I am, we step into that place of saying, I will, I will go with you, God. Would you change my heart at the deepest level? And see, this was the whole point of the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. When he died, this is perhaps the most insidious lie of our world is that when Jesus died, this was an example of how we're supposed to live. As if what he did is he showed us that, well, you know, when people are in trouble, you just got to give everything for them. You just got to die with everything you want. You know, you know why Jesus died for you? Because it was 
required for you to live a good life. If you would find beauty and joy and peace, then this is what was necessary. So he didn't do it as a big show, and he didn't say, how much do I got to give? He said, ah, they need to be free. They need to be forgiven. They need to be connected to you again, Father. I will pay the price that separates them, them from us, and they will be with us as one. This is your calling. Your calling is to live in the presence of God and to have your heart transformed to someone who loves mercy because you love the people who walk around you. You know, Dana was talking about that, you know, that it's right here, isn't it? Or was it that hand motion? Dana was talking about her question at one point, was she supposed to be a lawyer or not? And I think those sort of issues of calling often roll around in our heads. What are we called to do? What's the thing that I'm supposed to do? And often it feels like it has to be whatever I'm not doing now, you know, because what I'm doing now doesn't feel big enough. So what's my actual calling? I don't know what your calling is, except I know you're called to this. I know you're called to be a person who lives fully connected with God and with others. And so you become a dynamic, a stunning piece of work wherever you are. I know that you're called, if you're, you're a mom and you're at home with two kids under the age of three, you can do this there. You can live in such a way before your kids where you act justly and they see that, where you love mercy and they see that and they watch you walk humbly with God. No matter where you are today, you can live out a calling that is stunning. Of a heart that is passionately connected with God and with your fellow humanity. And that's what God has for you. I don't know why I today feel the necessity to talk about so many movies, but I do. It just happens. I love a good denouement. You know what a denouement is? It's the period of the movie after the climax. I don't like when you have the climax. You know, it's like a bad Christian worship song. You know, da, da, da. It ends with a big boom, and then you walk out. I like the da-da-da, and then you... Well, I don't actually like the da-da-da. I like the climax of the movie, and then the denouement. What happens afterwards? Because the denouement is, is what happens once the victory, the redemption has been won. In Lord of the Rings. One of the hundred reasons why I love it is the denouement. It's the big victory. And, you know, they're standing in Minas Tirith, and they should just end there, you know, with, ah, but they don't. They go back to the Shire because that's what it was all about, is living in the fullness of the victory. This is where you and I stand. You and I stand in the denouement. We stand after the climax after the Christ has come and lived and died and risen again and given you life, and now we get the opportunity to live in the fullness of that. We don't have to obey nine or ten things. We have the opportunity to live in the fullness of the presence of God and to see those moments when we don't love mercy is not crushing because now I'm not in danger of failing the test. He's already won it for me. Now I have the opportunity to see and to be able to say, honestly before this, I don't love mercy and go to God. God, how do you reshape my heart now? Because that's what you want of me. And what I see there is not necessarily a failure that keeps me from you, but an opportunity to explore how my heart gets more changed. I invite you in.
It is the call of a distant country. That sounds like a completely different song from what we hear so often in our own heads and the world around us. But it's the truest song. And it's calling to you now. And some of you have entered here. Wow, that dear. 10, 20, 30 years, you have believed that church was one more thing you had to add to your life. I destroy that notion. It is not a duty. It's the joy of your God to call you to himself. The opportunity to grow into the fullness of humanity. A heart that loves seeing other people get mercy. A heart that lives and breathes a desire for justice. And so injustice gets broken. And a heart that spends its days in connection with the one for whom you were made. Let's pray. Lord, would you lead us in now to this time of worship? And would you, I pray that this concept, which is both simple and difficult, would resonate in our hearts as we go forward and as we go out. So whether we're with a friend or with a spouse or with our kids or with an employer, with an employee, no matter where we are, we will see that we have a beautiful calling allowed because of the death and resurrection of Jesus to live connected. To rejoice with our fellow humans when joy happens and to weep with them, not because we must, but because our heart is with them. And I pray that in this time of worship now that from the moment we receive the offering throughout the entire space of this worship, you would call us home. We would hear that sound from a distant country and our heart would become more alive with a greater desire to live awakened and connected to you and to one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me. Thank you.